Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Vox Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash earthmonth. Welcome to Future Perfect. My name is Dylan Matthews. Global warming, as everyone knows, is caused by humans pumping hundreds of billions of tons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So in some ways, the simplest way to fix it would be to do the reverse pull carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Trees do this, of course, but not really enough to stem the problem. That's where carbon capture technologies come in. These plans, which range from capturing carbon as it's produced at power plants to pulling it directly out of the sky, look like they'll be an incredibly important part of the world's strategy for preventing the worst aftershocks of climate change. Akshat Rathi is a climate reporter at Bloomberg, and he's also a scientist. He holds a doctorate in chemistry from Oxford. He knows more than just about anyone about the world of carbon capture, so we caught up with him at his flat in London to see how these technologies work, what their pitfalls are, and why one recent company trying to pull carbon out of the air fell flat. First off, thanks for, for coming on the show. It's great to be here. So let's let's start with some of the basics. There are a bunch of different technologies that that try to capture CO2 and, and keep it from getting into the atmosphere or take it out of the atmosphere. Can you walk me through sort of what the main strategies are there and, and how they differ from each other? Yeah, I think we should first start with perhaps differentiating two types of technologies. One is just carbon capture, which is capturing emissions as they come out from, say, a power plant or an industry. And that is something we've been doing for five decades at least. And then there's a whole new class of technologies uh, and ideas, not just technologies. There, are, you know, Some of these are essentially big science experiments. And so those are a new set of technologies and techniques that are coming up to capture carbon dioxide directly from the air. Within the group of ideas and techniques and technologies that can capture carbon dioxide from the air, you can class them as what many people call nature-based. One of the most common one, of course, which people understand instinctively is trees. And so you can plant lots and lots of trees. You can also try and avoid deforestation. That also helps uh, keep carbon uh, dioxide in the ground, but also sometimes help increase the amount of carbon dioxide that undeforested area would store over the long term. Then there are 
things that seem a little bizarre but work. So there is an idea of crushing minerals. These are special types of minerals that uh, you know are plentiful uh, around the planet. And when you crush them, you expose uh, the the inner chemistry to carbon dioxide. And there is an affinity carbon dioxide has to those minerals. And uh, you accelerate the process, which would have happened naturally over millions and millions of years to happen over 5, 10, 20 years time. And once the carbon dioxide has reacted with uh, these minerals, uh, it's sequestered for good. Another idea is uh, is, a, is direct air capture, which is um, essentially a, a, a fancy tree. So you build large air filters to uh, separate out carbon dioxide, which makes up only 0.04% of the atmosphere. And then once you've separated the carbon dioxide, you typically compress it and uh, make it liquid or what they call a supercritical fluid. And then you pump it deep underground, probably in places like depleted oil and gas uh, wells, uh, where again, it can stay there for millennia uh, at a time. So those are largely the the ideas. There are a few others, and it's not. I I would be called out probably to be told that that's still not exhaustive. That there are still nutty ideas out there to capture carbon dioxide from the air. For sure, but it's it's a lot to dig into. Um, so let's let's start with the the first one you mentioned, uh, sort of carbon capture at source. So at at natural gas or, or coal plants, you're you're burning these dirty fuels and, and capturing the carbon as it's released rather than out of the atmosphere where it's a pretty small share of the gases where we're all floating around in. How well do those schemes work? Um, I sometimes hear uh, criticisms from environmentalists that this is this is just kind of greenwashing, that this is uh, not really effective and meant to make coal and natural gas look like they could be clean when they can't be sort of how how much should we believe in those kinds of technologies? From a pure physics and chemistry standpoint, it works. And we know it works. And it's been working for five decades, as I said. And the idea is actually ra- really rather simple. So say, and let's, let's also ensure that this is not just about coal power plants and natural gas power plants. This idea is likely going to be absolutely necessary in uh, the cement industry, for example because cement, even if you don't use any fossil fuels, the production of cement produces carbon dioxide just because of the chemistry of using limestone as a starting material. But yeah, I mean, the idea goes back to very basic high school lessons that we've probably all done at some point. Uh, you take a, a, a mixture of a base, uh, typically it's you know sodium hydroxide or potassium hydroxide, and you take a straw, and you breathe out through that straw into that solution. And what you'll start to see is that that clear solution becomes cloudy. And then you're told by your teacher, what you have just done is converted sodium hydroxide, which is a base, into sodium bicarbonate or sodium carbonate, uh, which is another base, but is uh, less soluble in water. And so you see this mixture, you see a change in color. And the idea is carbon dioxide is slightly acidic. If you mix it with a base, it will trap it. It'll make a compound which will remove it from whatever mixture it is from uh, and and chemically transform it into something else. And that's the idea that oil and gas industry has used since the 70s. 
you do naturally find carbon dioxide in these wells. You separate the carbon dioxide from the natural gas, and then you pump it back into the ground. And you do it because it allows oil and gas companies to increase the yield of oil and gas that they get from these wells. And so that's why we can be sure that it works because they have been using it and have been using it for profitable purposes for quite some time. And is there like enough demand uh, for, for things like uh, drilling for oil or, or other uses of carbon dioxide uh, to scale that up? If you look at all the, the CO2 that's being emitted through things like cement uh, plants, as you mentioned, or, or power plants, is it a situation where like some small minority of that CO2 could be put to useful purposes or, or is this sort of a really big industry that could take up a big share of it? So no, it doesn't have that much capacity. You might be able to scale this up from, you know, as I said, 40, 60 or 80 million tons a year to maybe 10 times as much, maybe. But that's not the reason why uh, there are some people who pursue enhanced oil recovery as a route to scaling up carbon capture. The reason they do it is because carbon dioxide doesn't have a price in most of the world. Uh, and where it does have a price, it's quite uh, weak, uh, you know, a few dollars a ton or maybe a few tens of dollars a ton, uh, which is not enough for your carbon capture process to be profitable just on its own to not have an extra source of revenue. And doing enhanced oil recovery, which does end up storing that CO2 in the oil reservoir, is a way for you to have a revenue source. You can think of it as the bridge to making carbon capture a slightly bigger deal than it is so that when you scale some technology up, its price falls, and maybe that would be a way to make it economical eventually to not have to use it with oil recovery at all. I want to stay on, on enhanced oil recovery a bit since you've, you've written a lot on this. You wrote a lot about one of the, the first places that this was used. I'm, I'm curious how this cashes out from a climate perspective, since on, on the one hand, you're, you're taking CO2 that would otherwise uh, be in the atmosphere and using it for this purpose. On the other hand, you're drilling for oil. Uh, oil is a fossil fuel. Um, and, and I think I at least have an intuitive aversion to, to uh, pulling more, more oil out. Um, as someone who's thought about this really carefully, how does that cash out for the climate on net? Is it, is it carbon neutral, slightly positive, slightly negative? Um, I think your instinct is right. You know, one of the things that we need to do to tackle climate change is to try and reduce uh, A, the use of fossil fuels, and then B, the extraction of fossil fuels. Um, and so, you know, connecting a climate technology to extracting more fossil fuels just feels wrong, even if it, you know, on a very mathematical basis might not be. Again, a little bit of history might help. One reason why climate and enhanced oil recovery or like removing carbon dioxide and connecting it to enhanced oil recovery even became a thing was in the early 2000s, um, natural gas was quite expensive. The shale gas revolution hadn't happened. Uh, and there was an assumption that coal will have a much longer life than now, two decades later, we can see it may not. And if coal has a much longer life, you know, in your 2000s uh, view, you would want to find ways to do away with that carbon dioxide. And enhanced oil recovery at that time seemed like the route to follow. Now what has happened is people in the carbon capture field have recognized that 
you know, A, it doesn't make for good optics to connect yourself to enhanced oil recovery. And B, there is enough political buy-in that you may actually be able to do it without having to connect yourself to oil. So a lot of the carbon capture advocates have moved on from connecting either to a coal power plant or to enhanced oil recovery um, and linking it more to industry where we know that cutting carbon dioxide is a much harder problem than it is in other sectors. One thing you've emphasized is we really need a a way to take some of the CO2 and and put it inside the earth in a a place where it won't get back out to the atmosphere. So oil extraction seems like an obvious use case for that, where where you're you're digging deep into the earth, and and so you already have access to a place to put all this carbon that, that we're pulling from the atmosphere or pulling from plants. What are some other means and, and sort of how are, what are some of the solutions for taking carbon and putting it deep into the earth that people working on this problem have come up with? Yeah, very good question. It's something that a lot of people probably have misconceptions about. So the first misconception is to think of oil and gas as actual wells underground. You might imagine like, you know, a weird shaped, natural shaped tank of oil that you put a straw in and you extract the oil. Uh, But that's not how it works. Deep underground, the oil that you find is really trapped in these small pores inside rocks. So what happens when you store carbon dioxide uh, in an oil and gas uh, reservoir, a depleted one, is essentially you convert the carbon dioxide into a, a liquid, and then you just pump that liquid into these pores that have been voided because you've extracted the oil and gas from it. That type of pore formation exists in other places. There there are something called saline aquifers, which are essentially like oil and gas wells, but instead of having oil and gas in them, they just have salt water in them. And so you can inject carbon dioxide in those places, displacing some of the salty water. Uh, There are also places like in Iceland, a type of rock called basalt. And uh, basalt has uh, the capacity of actually reacting with carbon dioxide. So it's also a porous rock. You can do what you do with uh, normal carbon dioxide injection. But instead of it being stored as liquid in those pores, it actually reacts with the uh, basalt rock and becomes rock. In two years' time, if you drill down into the same place where you uh, injected carbon dioxide, what you get back is pure rock. And so... Those are like the three main types of places where you can inject carbon dioxide into the ground. And we actually have enough place underground on the planet to put away all the carbon dioxide that we have ever released burning fossil fuels. Um, And so we don't need to worry about running out of that space anytime soon. What we may need to worry about is uh, the geographical distribution of those uh, types of geologies, and they're not evenly distributed. Uh, Some places like the U.S. are endowed with having those places to sink carbon dioxide into, uh, and then there are places where you don't. And so we might have to figure out transporting carbon dioxide to places where there are sinks available. Uh, But I think we are very far from that challenge uh, today. We're nowhere close to running out of places to sink carbon dioxide in. So I want to back up a second to, to the one of the first technologies you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, which is trees. Trees, as we, we all remember from middle school, take CO2 in, uh, push oxygen out, 
And there's been a lot of efforts around planting more trees. The, the Trump administration had this, this trillion trees initiative. Why, why can't that be the bulk of the solution? Uh, if, if we have this ancient technology that can pull CO2 out, why is there so much interest in, in building more advanced technologies when, when we have that and it works? This is something, you know, advocates who are researchers in the field who understand exactly how this works themselves accept that trees aren't going to be the only solution we can pursue. And the reason is, let's take a trillion tree plan. The amount of land that you're going to need to plant those trillion trees uh, is is likely the size of India. And sometimes people say you have to you know, plant two trillion trees or three trillion trees because that's the loss that humans have brought to this planet. Then you're looking at uh, the size of China in planting trees. We just don't have that much land. And that feels odd to say, you know, humans are increasingly occupying more densely populated city regions and, and maybe, you know, opening up spaces on the rest of the planet. But we do use a lot of land for agriculture. So if you start planting trees just for carbon purposes, what it does is it brings you into land and people conflict very quickly. Most of the people who are talking about planting trees as a solution are rich countries. They don't typically have that much land. You know, the U.S. is probably endowed with a lot of land, but take Europe. A rich region doesn't have that much land. And so you will get into this risk of green colonialism. And it's already starting to happen. In one of the stories that uh, a few reporters from Bloomberg wrote about last year, a forest in South America is being protected for carbon offsets for companies like Disney and there is land conflict happening there just because somebody's paying for those carbon offsets. So that's one reason. The second reason is most tree planting programs are pretty poorly run. So the goal is in the incentive system is to store carbon. The fastest way to store carbon is typically to plant fast growing trees. There are one or two or three species, depending on the region that you are in, that tend to be the fast growing species. And if you just do monocultures, you you know may store carbon in the short term, but in the long term, it doesn't work out well. It kills the biodiversity in that region. Those forests become very vulnerable to pests or to fires. And you know carbon dioxide is a is a multi hundred year problem. So you can't just rely on it being stored for ten or twenty or even fifty years and then being re released into the atmosphere. Um, and then. Uh, the final part is, you know, we talk about carbon removal um, and forests become these cheap offsets that you can buy for a few dollars a ton. And when you have those few dollars a ton, even if they may or may not work, because you can buy them, uh, you as a company or a, as an individual uh, feel like it's the license to keep polluting in other places. So you may not do the hard work of actually cutting emissions you may just buy offsets because in your carbon accounting system, it just works out in your favor. So I'm going to lump together a few technologies that you mentioned a few minutes ago. What those all seem to have in common to me as a layperson is, is that like trees, you're trapping CO2 in a place where you can't really use it. Uh, that it's it's not like if you're capturing it at a cement plant and then you have all the CO2 and canisters you can use for things. How do those kinds of technologies compare to trees and how viable do they seem as someone who covers this industry? 
What we do know is increasing carbon in soil is just good for agriculture, good for productivity, for the land, for the uh, the crops that are grown from there. The difficulty there, to some extent, just like the trees, is verifying and ensuring that the carbon that gets stored stays there for a long enough time. And we just have not done the experiments to the extent we need to, to be scientifically uh, be certain that the carbon dioxide is being stored. So let's take the example of crushed minerals uh, on agricultural soil. There are currently experiments being run in a few parts of the world, uh, Australia, the UK, and uh, a few other countries, where what you do is you take these crushed minerals, you spread it around on agricultural land, and then you measure, typically when you add these minerals, the, the acidity of the soil falls, and you make an estimate on how much carbon is being stored. And those experiments take a long period of time. So do we have enough time to wait till we get the results on those experiments to be 100% certain it works? Probably not, because once you've done it in the UK, you'll have to do it in other types of soils around the world, and you'll have to you know, repeat those experiments multiple times to be sure that this technology works. So that's, a, that's the main problem with uh, storing carbon in agricultural soils. It's an idea that others are attempting to scale, uh, but there are real big scientific holes in it currently. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about direct air capture, a climate technology that seems to have a lot of excitement and investment surrounding it. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. So let's move to, to the last and, and in some ways the sexiest, or at least the, the one the press loves the most of, of these technologies, uh, which is direct air capture. Walk me through what, what that is, how it works, and, and sort of why it, it seems to have so much energy and, and investment behind it. So direct air capture is sort of a, a child of the conventional carbon capture technology. What it does is instead of filtering you know, say the gases coming out from a power plant, direct air capture filters the air. And the air has only 0.04% of 400 parts per million uh, carbon dioxide in it. So one way that I've found people understand this problem easily is to imagine in front of you a bathtub full of M&Ms. All the M&Ms in there are blue colored. And your goal is to find the red colored M&Ms, which are 400 in the 10, you know, 4,000 in the 10 million M&Ms in that bathtub. It's just an energy intensive process if you go through each of your M&Ms to get to the, the red ones. And that's what happens when you're filtering air. You need to filter a lot of air to ensure that the little bit of carbon dioxide that is the problem causing climate change gets trapped. For the longest time, people thought that process is so energy intensive that you're never going to be able to make it economically viable. 
What has happened since is a number of ideas uh, have come together where instead of using conventional carbon capture where you use a liquid base and you bring it in contact with carbon dioxide from uh, flue gas, you use a base that is connected to a solid and you can then reduce the total amount of energy spent in filtering the air. And you could bring the cost down, according to some peer-reviewed studies, to as little as $100 per ton. And suddenly that price allows you to make this technology commercially viable without having to do anything with the oil and gas industry. Um, And that separation from the oil and gas industry is clearly one that many environmentalists like, but also many investors like, because then you're betting on an industry that is not connected to a dying uh, industry and you're betting on a growing industry. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why Direct Air Capture has found so much interest among among investors. Let's talk a little bit about what, what the carbon that's being captured out of the air could be used for. I, I imagine this is somewhat similar to the carbon that's being, being taken directly uh, from sources like cement plants or, or power plants. We've talked a little bit about enhanced oil recovery. What are some of the other things that you could use that uh, that carbon uh, taken either out of the atmosphere or out of a plant for? There are a few ideas floating around. They haven't yet reached scale. So one that's very popular is, of course, sodas. You can take that carbon dioxide, put it into sodas. Of course, much of that carbon dioxide is put back into the atmosphere. So what you're doing is not sequestering it. You're just recycling it. That's the same thing that will happen if you make synthetic fuels from it. So instead of extracting oil from the ground, uh, you take CO2, which is carbon mixed with oxygen, you separate the oxygen out and you add hydrogen on top of it and you create essentially synthetic oil. And uh, that's one way in which you could ensure, for example, that planes continue to have fuels without having to rely on fossil fuels by just making synthetic fuels. But again, the process is only recycling carbon because eventually that fuel will get burnt, will go back into the atmosphere. There are some more speculative ideas like converting carbon dioxide into carbon fiber, which is a material that you can use for lots and lots of things from construction material to uh, high-grade materials used in, say, cars or cycles, um, or even for furniture in in houses. But that process is currently quite expensive, and there is no guarantee it will become any cheaper. So at some point, you top out. Even if you make all of these applications economically viable, the amount of CO2 that we need to draw down is so immense that Eventually, if you are going to use this as a climate solution, you just have to bury it deep underground. And that's something that we just have to face uh, if we are going to use carbon removal technologies. You kind of touched on this there, but whenever I read about direct air capture in particular, some of the use cases you mentioned bottling sodas, carbon engineering, which is one of the, the big firms doing this, talks a lot about making synthetic fuels. So you take CO2 from the atmosphere and you turn it into jet fuel or something. They, they seem like, at best, they're kind of carbon neutral. Um, I'm drinking a Diet Coke right now. It has CO2 in it. When I when I opened the can, a lot of that CO2 went out and is not being sequestered anywhere safe. How can we make those use cases carbon negative, or, or can we make those kinds of use cases carbon negative? I don't think we can make them carbon negative 
because, you know, if you're going to, I mean, as I said, there's one way to make it carbon negative is, is to put them in materials that will then not leak the carbon back. So if you put it in carbon fibers, for example, it may have a natural life of hundreds of years before it, it degrades back into uh, the atmosphere. Uh, or even plastics, you know, you could use carbon dioxide to make synthetic plastics, uh, which a few companies make today uh, at very small scales, um, and then they remain trapped away. But of course, we know plastics have their own problem for the environment. So do you want to uh, take on that challenge? But yeah, I think in most use cases, you're right that the carbon is being recycled rather than, rather than being stored. Uh, it goes back into the atmosphere. Companies like Carbon Engineering are using the synthetic fuel option just as coal power plants were using enhanced oil recovery as an option. In the short term, that's where the demand is. Places like California are ready to pay the premium to buy synthetic fuels made from direct air capture. So why not use that as a revenue stream to, to make this process so cheap that eventually just a carbon price will be enough for the technology to scale up. A lot of these use cases that we've talked about, whether that's making synthetic fuels or drilling for oil, it assumes a lot of demand for kind of traditional carbon-intensive fuels. And, and one thing that's happening as we're having this discussion is there's a huge push to switch to electric cars from policymakers, but also from automakers. Uh, we're a few weeks after Volkswagen jokingly announced that they were going to be called Volkswagen. Uh, which was very silly, but also indicative of like a real shift that's happening in the auto industry toward away from internal combustion engines. So how much future do these technologies have when sort of the kinds of engines and the kinds of fossil fuel infrastructure uh, that they might be best suited for, we're already kind of moving away from? But I think what we tend to forget is that even though electrification of transport is uh, now a complete reality and most of the large automakers are completely focused on it, the stock of vehicles that exists is so vast uh, that the internal combustion engine isn't going to die out in the next 30 years. A very good example is to just look at Norway. So Norway now sells something like 70% of all their vehicles as electric. By 2025, 100% of their vehicles will be electric. But the stock, the total number of vehicles in Norway is still 90% fossil fuel based. So the, the decline in oil consumption is not even 10% because you know trucks and uh, lorries and buses uh, tend to still use oil and tend to use a lot more oil per kilometer than a, a normal car would. So that reduction is is closer to you know five or six or seven percent uh, over the period in which uh, Norway has begun its electric transformation, and so synthetic fuels will have a a longer life. And even beyond road transport, we know, for example, that long haul flights just do not um, make themselves viable on a very purely physics standpoint for battery electrification. Uh, you might get hydrogen planes, which you could make from clean sources, but there is a very good chance that we will have long haul flights that just need a drop in replacement fuel for fossil fuels, and that could be synthetic fuels. So if you're betting on synthetic fuels, you probably have a longer life than betting on enhanced oil recovery, for example. Uh, so it's not a bad bet to make. 
You recently uh, did a, a big investigation with uh, one of your, your colleagues at Bloomberg on a direct air capture firm called Global Thermostat. And it's it's a really kind of wild and, and twisty story. Um, I'm hoping you can, can walk us through it and, and also say a bit about what reporting that and, and learning about this company has, has taught you about the industry as a whole and some of the challenges it's going to be running into as it tries to scale up and, and become a big part of uh, of our approach to climate change? It was a really fun, but also a taxing exercise to uncover some of the mismanagement and uh, poor decision-making that happened inside this direct air capture startup. My colleague Leslie Kaufman and I worked on it uh, for over the past uh, year or so. I think one way to think about this is so far, you know, climate startups have been far and few and they have mostly received good press because they are far and few and we need a lot more of them. And isn't it great that at least some of them are being able to get the money that they need to build technologies that will help us fight climate change? What's happening now is that money is really growing very rapidly. So there was a recent analysis from PricewaterhouseCooper that found the investments in climate tech have gone from $400 million per year in 2013 to $16 billion per year in 2019. And it's accelerating a lot more because of what's happening on Wall Street with uh, special acquisition companies. And wherever you have money going, there will be people who will try to game the system and try and make money where you can't make money. And so it's quite important, I feel like, now that climate technologies and climate startups have reached a level of importance in investment, that journalists take a more critical look at whether companies are actually doing what they promise. Now, in the case of Global Thermostat, we got tips about uh, the founder being disruptive uh, within the company and stopping people who, you know, within the company wanted to actually scale up the technology from being able to scale up the technology. And those anecdotes also uh, chimed with the progress that we could see direct air capture companies were making. So in about the 2009-2010 period, three companies launched. Uh, There was Global Thermostat, which is a US-based company. There's Carbon Engineering, which is a Canadian company, but has, uh, you know, the, the science comes from a Harvard professor and then Climeworks, which is a Swiss company. And all three of them started working on building and scaling direct air capture technology. And what we've seen is that Carbon Engineering and Climeworks have built pilot plants and are are scaling up the technology in multiple ways. But Global Thermostat has kind of stagnated. And so that those two things, when they came, came together, is when we started looking at it more closely. And we did find that you know those uh, anecdotes were true, uh, having spoken to uh, lots and lots of people, both former and current employees, but also investors and interested investors who'd done their due diligence on the company. So a lot of the future of, of all these industries seems like it depends really heavily on, on government policy. You, you mentioned uh, that in the story on Global Thermostat, but the U.S. has a tax credit for for carbon removal, and there's there's been some pushes for for more more subsidies there. Walk me through the landscape as it sits now, and as it, it looks like it's it's going to to sit in the future. Um, as we're speaking, 
in the U.S., Joe Biden has been been pushing a big infrastructure package that's uh, very heavily oriented around uh, responding to climate change. How much support do you expect this industry to, to get going forward from uh, the U.S., the U.K., other governments around the world? It's a very good question. And I think policy, as you know, and as lots of people know, is going to be absolutely crucial in bringing uh, climate technologies to scale, primarily because there is no carbon price. And so, uh, you know, your cleaner technologies can't compete uh, on a level playing field with uh, fossil fuel based products. But also, the pace at which we are looking to scale these ideas uh, is just much faster than would have happened if it was a period where there was no there wasn't a climate emergency or you just let the market you know choose the best of the technologies um and so pol- policy is crucial i will also say that in some way the us has been far ahead on policy but has not used that leadership position to its full advantage so a very good example is the zero emissions vehicle program that was started in california you know, of course, that helped companies like Tesla to come out of uh, Silicon Valley and become these giants. But on the whole, the rest of America did not follow through on taking the lead from California. Instead, that policy has now been replicated in China and in some form in Europe. And both those regions have uh, implemented them and ran with it to the point where now we know that most of your electric cars sold annually are sold in China and only last year, Europe has become the leader and the U.S. is, you know, a middling player. You can say the same thing with solar panels, for example. A lot of the research that went into creating solar panels happened in the U.S., but scaling up happened in Germany and then China and the U.S. wasn't able to really get the gains of having industries and employment and jobs uh, within uh, the country from all the investments it had made. Carbon capture is one area where the U.S. has actually managed to keep its leadership position. So unlike all the other climate technologies we've talked about, carbon capture started off its life as a purely profit-driven oil and gas industry initiative. Then they worked with governments to build a, a network of CO2 pipelines. The U.S. has the largest network of CO2 pipelines in the world that makes transporting carbon dioxide cheap and thus allows you to build carbon capture facilities at a much cheaper cost than you would have to if you were building them in Europe or in China. And even today, if you look at the total amount of CO2 captured in the world, the US does the bulk of the capture. But you know, now that we're doing it for climate and because the US doesn't have a national carbon price, you know, capturing carbon dioxide just for the sake of it is still not viable, which is why instruments like the 45Q tax credit has been vital for this industry. Uh, a number of projects are you know, completely tied to getting this sort of $50 a ton of tax credit in lieu of capturing carbon uh, to make their projects profitable. And I think we're going to need that for quite some time till there is a, at least uh, an implicit, if not an explicit, carbon price on these products. So so another concern I hear from environmentalists on, on carbon removal is uh, sort of a moral hazard concern. So it's a way to, to address climate change without 
uh, doing the work to reduce our emissions from electricity and transportation and, and other things. And there's sometimes a perception that it's it's like a cheap solution or or a, a fast way around those kind of hard transitions. How true is that? How how much uh, is this a way to avoid making hard emissions reductions versus just sort of another tool in the toolkit? If you come to this problem anew, it's a fair concern to have. You know, we are pumping out 40 billion tons of CO2 every year. And on the other hand, these carbon capture technologies are capturing 40 million tons, so less than 0.1%. Uh, you know, direct air capture doesn't even capture uh, tens of thousands of tons or hundreds of thousands of tons annually right now. And so environmentalists argue, well, it's a dangerous distraction because you feel like there is the option to have a technology that will magically put all the CO2 away, then why should we worry about cutting emissions in the near term? But if you think a little more carefully for a little more time, you'll realize that those worries are you know, unfounded because we are so late in the game right now that we need pretty much every lever possible you know, being used to its fullest extent, which is to say every economic sector needs to cut emissions and at the same time, we need to scale carbon removal technologies. That's how urgent this situation is. That you can't do an either or right now. Essentially, pretty much every climate solution is an and problem today. You want this and that and that and that if you're going to have to solve tackling the emissions problem. I think this is this is a really good intro for people new to the topic. I, I'm sorry if some of the the material was pretty basic for for you, but no, um, no, absolutely. I think it's you know I've been writing about this for five years now, and it's still like a challenge to to make sure people know what what this is. Uh, <laughs> and and you know it's because you don't see it, right? You see solar panels, you see wind turbines, you see electric cars. But you don't see, you know, very few people have seen a coal power plant in their life or they've probably driven past one. Nobody's gone inside one. Uh, you know, you probably can't tell from the outside whether something's a steel factory or a cement factory. Uh, so people just don't have an understanding of the physical economy in the way we need, actually, to be able to tackle this problem. Akshat, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun, and I hope we can do this again. Me too. I'm Dylan Matthews. This is Future Perfect. This episode was produced by Sophie Lalonde. Our editor is Kenny Torella. Learn more at vox.com slash futureperfect. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. 
Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 